0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with How Stuff Works and iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And it has been about two weeks since I've been in the studio, even though this episode is going to go right behind one that I recorded two weeks ago. So in our last episode which was ages ago for me, I teased a bit about the emergence of the audio cassette tape. And I think you could argue that the cassette split the path of audio consumption into two sort of broad philosophies. On one side, you have the audiophile dream of a format and a system capable of producing sound from a recording that would be indistinguishable from the original performance. So it would be as if you, the listener, were actually in the recording studio when the tracks were first laid down. Or at the very least, that you would be hearing the sound that the producers intended for you to hear. Because if they put a lot of effects on it or anything like that in post-production, then obviously you're not going to hear exactly the thing that was performed when it was being recorded. But you get my point. The other philosophy would sacrifice some quality in return for added convenience. So these this isn't just one format, but sort of a, a group of formats that are not the highest in audio quality compared to things like vinyl albums, for example. These formats can't provide the fidelity of the ones that are beloved by audiophiles, but they do allow for more versatile listening experiences, such as portable devices capable of playing back audio. These two philosophies would continue on from the 1960s through to today, and they have an impact on the actual practices of audio recording, but we'll get into all of that in this and future episodes. So first, let's talk about magnetic tape. I mentioned it a bit in the previous episode, like when I talked about recording multiple tracks to the same tape, making it possible for a single musician to accompany him or herself on different instruments or even the same instrument playing different parts of a song. With enough tracks and a versatile enough musician, you could have one person play virtually all the instruments and provide lead and backing vocals on a single piece of music. So, for example, this isn't a a song, but a piece of music. In the piece Tubular Bells, which was made famous in The Exorcist, Mike Oldfield played acoustic guitar, bass guitar, electric guitar, three different kinds of organs, fuzz guitars, glockenspiel, mandolin, piano, and timpani. Oh, and also the tubular bells, plus some other stuff. And obviously he wasn't playing all of that simultaneously during the recording session. He was able to lay that down track by track into a full piece. So let's talk a bit about the tech of magnetic tape and how all of this is possible. So this is going to mean backtracking again through our history. But I feel like this is easier to understand if we tackle each topic individually as opposed to going year by year and kind of leapfrogging back and forth between different technologies evolving at different rates. Um, that was just the call I made when I was building out these episodes. So uh, you've got to remember that the progress of magnetic tape is also connected in many ways to other technologies, uh, including stuff like the evolution of the microphone and the development of amplification tubes and later amplification transistors. But we're going to start with a Danish engineer named Valdemar Poulsen. Though some other smarty pants had already been theorizing that magnetic recording could be a possibility. But it was Poulsen's work that would produce the first actual working devices. Everything else was kind of theoretical. Sometime around 1900, Poulsen developed a machine that could record sound onto a length of steel wire through means of magnetism. He called it the telegraphone. I'm guessing. (laughs) It's telegraphone, perhaps. But how the heck does the darn thing work, let alone how is it pronounced? Well, imagine you've got a ferromagnetic material. So this is like, you know, something like iron. This is a material that if you expose it to a magnetic field, it will remain magnetized by that field. You take the field away, the material still remains magnetized. So it doesn't just have a magnetic effect in the presence of a a magnetic field. The magnetic field itself will magnetize the material, at least until some other magnetic force acts upon it. Now, before you record anything onto a fresh strip of magnetic tape, or in the case of Polson's device, steel wire, the material isn't magnetized. It's in its raw state. So it's just waiting as a blank medium. You take a microphone and you play sound into the microphone. Maybe you're singing into it. Maybe you're playing an acoustic guitar. uh, But the vibrations from the sound cause a small diaphragm inside the microphone to vibrate. And the diaphragm transfers those vibrations to other elements in the microphone. Those elements depend upon the type of microphone. So not all microphones are exactly the same. They all work on a similar principle, but the details are different. However, for simplicity's sake, let's talk about dynamic microphones for the purposes of this discussion. The diaphragm would cause a coil of conductive wire to move around a magnetic core. So imagine you've got a coil, and the coil is, uh, is wrapped around a magnetic core, loosely wrapped around, and the coil can move back and forth laterally along this core. If you remember how electromagnetism works... You'll remember that if you happen to move a conductor in and out of a magnetic field, or you subject the conductive material to a fluctuating magnetic field, it induces current to flow through that conductor. The electric current is pretty weak coming out of a microphone, but it represents the fluctuations of the diaphragm, which in turn are representations of the sound vibrations that hit that diaphragm. So think of it this way. Sound hits the diaphragm, diaphragm vibrates, the vibrates cause, vibrations cause this coil to move back and forth across this magnetic core. That induces current to flow through the wire. And then you've got an electric current. You can use that current to drive a different electromagnet. Uh, typically, you would wrap the wire around a ferromagnetic or iron-like core. And as the current flows through the wire coiled around this core, the electromagnet generates a magnetic field. So it's kind of recreating the magnetic field that was uh, fluctuating when the coil was vibrating in the microphone side. So it's sort of the same thing I just described earlier, but in reverse. Magnetic recording devices use such an electromagnet to imprint a magnetic uh, recording onto the medium. So typically the core is actually a disc or a ring. It's very small. And there is a wire coiled around one side of the ring. Think of like a washer, like a a washer that you would get from a a hardware store, a little round disc. And imagine that you've wrapped, this particular little round disc happens to be a magnet, uh, or at least it's ferromagnetic. And you've wrapped a wire, a conductive wire around one side of that disc. And then you cut a gap at the bottom of that disk. That that gap is what is going to be very close to the recording medium. The gap actually causes the magnetic field that will be generated when electric current flows through the wire to fringe outward. And it's this that magnetizes the recording medium passing below. So you've generated this magnetic fluctuation by feeding an electrical signal that you had generated with the microphone. And remember that electric signal represents the original sound you need the recording medium to pass by that electromagnet at a regular speed to get a clear, undistorted recording. So it's very important that the speed at which the medium passes under this uh, recording head is, uh, is nice and regular. As the medium passes by this electromagnet, the material in the medium is magnetized according to those fluctuations from the magnetic field. When you're done, you've got a length of that medium whether it's tape or it's steel wire, that has imprinted on it those magnetized particles. And they will stay in those magnetic orientations unless you expose them to a more powerful magnetic field, in which case they will reorient. This, by the way, is why if you've ever worked with any sort of magnetic storage, people would tell you, make sure you don't have any powerful magnets nearby it. That's why. Because the powerful magnets could reorient the magnetic particles in that material and thus erase whatever was recorded on them. That's why if you are destroying magnetic uh, storage, you typically expose it to a very powerful magnet first. To play back recorded sound, you would then take this medium where you've got these magnetized particles and you would run them under a tape head. Uh, It's essentially, it's exactly the same thing. In fact, it could be the same head as the recording tape head. And in this case, you don't actually have a current running through that wire. It's the ferromagnetic core, and it's the coil wrapped around it, but the coil at the moment is inert. There's no electricity running through it. When you run the magnetic material past this, then you create those magnetic fluctuations, which induce electricity to flow through the wire wrapped around the ferromagnetic core, and you reproduce the electric current that was used to create the magnetic fluctuations that were imprinted on the material in the first place. So you're just, you're reversing the whole process. And again, it's because of that electromagnetic phenomena where you have the magnetized material running past a, a uh, conductor that's wrapped around a ferromagnetic core. You technically don't even need the ferromagnetic core to do this. It's just, it makes it easier It kind of, it almost acts like an amplifier, so that's really why it's there. And then that current that's generated can be then sent to amplifiers, which will take in that signal and boost its strength so that that signal can then drive something like speakers, and then you get the sound. So the steel wire approach worked, but it produced recordings of pretty low sound quality. It was not something you could use for music or for performance. Recorders using magnetic wire did find their way into some products Uh, with later innovators. They took that same idea that uh, uh, Poulsen had, and mostly you would get dictation machines that were used by hoity-toity executive types who would dictate their words to be preserved on wire for later transcription. Then you have a German businessman named Louis Blattner who wanted to take this technology and to develop it further. Well, not not himself personally. He actually told the engineers in his company to get to work on doing that. He wanted to try and have a product he could sell to the BBC. And they made the switch from steel wire to steel tape. So it's a flat piece of tape, but it's made out of steel. And they produced a device that was called the Blattner phone which is probably the most attractive name for a piece of technology I've ever heard. Lou would present this gadget to the BBC, and they decided it's good enough for recording speech, but it was not good enough to record sound uh, of other stuff like like music at a high enough quality to be considered broadcastable. The tape was—or at least the original machines, the first two— used tape that was uh, six millimeters wide, so not very wide at all. And it ran through the machine at a rate of five feet per second. That's about a meter and a half per second, which is pretty darn fast. Think about this. You've got this thin steel tape moving at that speed. You might be thinking, oh, my droogies, that's pretty darn dangerous. And you would be right. You would not want to get too close to this thing or you could get pretty badly cut. And it didn't get much better when Blattner's team created a version that used tape that was only three millimeters wide. But the tape was actually better than steel wire. You got better quality recordings, but still not to the level that could be used for broadcast and certainly a far cry from anything that could be used for consumers. Now, while the Blattner phone was terrorizing the BBC, there was a German-Austrian engineer named Dr. Fritz Fleumer, and he had been experimenting with a paper tape coated with uh, lacquer and an iron oxide powder. So iron oxide is ferromagnetic and would serve as the actual recording medium. And iron oxide for a very, very long time would become the go-to material. There were different iron oxides that different inventors would use over the years to get better and better results. But iron oxide became kind of the go-to powder that you would use to create this kind of uh, magnetic tape. So the AEG company in Berlin negotiated with Floimer uh, to develop a device based off of his work back in 1932. And they also collaborated with a different company called BASF to create a magnetic recording materials and equipment. This collaboration led to a tape made from cellulose acetate rather than paper, uh, still coated with lacquer and iron oxide and using another uh, cellulose acetate type of material to act as a binder agent. The two companies presented their collaboration, which they called the Magnetophone, which is not something you use to call the head of evil mutants, and they showed it off at the 1935 radio fair in Berlin. Now, Floimer had a bit of a sad outcome to this whole thing. Uh, Everything was done on the up and up, but... His patents were later overturned by the German National Court. The court determined that the ideas he had patented had already been presented way back in the late 1800s by none other than Valdemar Poulsen, the guy who came up with that steel wire contraption, that he had already described a tape based system. It's just that he wasn't able to make that one work during his lifetime. But because there was prior art, the patents that Fleumer had uh, had uh, uh, registered were overturned. German engineers continued to improve the technology, and by the early 1940s, it was at the point where it was a legitimate alternative to the other recording methods of the time. Magnetic tape made a huge impact on that recording industry. So for one thing, you could record way more information on a reel of tape. you could on a wax cylinder or a shellac disc, which were the other media at the time. Uh, For another, with tape, you could edit. If you're recording to a wax disc or a, a shellac disc and you make a mistake, it's there. And you pretty much have to scrap everything and start over or you have to live with the mistake. With tape, you could actually record and you could literally cut and paste if you needed to, the the tape so that you could get rid of accidents. You could loop things if you wanted to. There were a lot of different tricks you could do. And as we listened in the last episode, you could do multi-track recordings. You could uh, put multiple tracks side by side on the same length of tape. You know, imagine you've got a piece of tape and it's several feet long and it's maybe a couple of inches wide. You could actually fit... Multiple tracks side by side, and each track is a different recording, and they're all synchronized by just being next to each other on this tape. So that allowed for a lot of versatility in the recording process, and it really freed things up. Shifting the recording head over slightly allows you to record a second track or a third track. Um, You could even record tracks for specific speakers, that's what allowed for stereo sound. And like I said in the last episode, Les Paul uh, played a really big part in getting multi-track recording off the ground running. Uh, Ampex would actually build the device based on Les Paul's requests, and they built the first eight-track recording system. So... Soon you had the entire recording industry relying on magnetic tape for recording, mixing, and mastering. Uh, at the time, they were mostly relying on three-track systems and then a little bit later, four-track systems. The eight-track actually didn't come into play till a bit later, but people began to figure out how to work with those. Like, you could record four tracks onto a tape. Then you could take that tape of four tracks and transfer the recording to one track of another four-track recorder, and thus you could start to... Uh, build a piece that way. It was more time consuming, but it was also still more versatile than the, you know, just getting everybody in the same room at the same time and hope that no one makes a mistake. So the real impact of magnetic tape I want to feature on this episode hit consumers. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. But first, let's take a quick break. From the 1930s to the early 1960s, the format of the tape recorder was huge. It was a big, big machine. You were working with reel-to-reel tapes. That meant that you would have one reel that would have all of your audio stored on magnetic tape. It's wrapped around this reel. And then you have a second empty reel, and you would put both of those reels on spokes on your tape recorder. Then you would take the magnetic tape from the main reel, you would carefully feed the magnetic tape through the machine so that the tape is going to pass under the tape head uh, or over the tape head depending upon the design of the machine but that the tape head would uh, it would pass uh, across it then you would feed it continuing through the machine until you could wrap it and uh, tuck it into the secondary reel you turn on the machine and then the secondary reel starts to turn and starts to pull the tape through the recorder. And that meant that the magnetic tape would pass over or under the tape head, and that would create that electrical signal in the tape head that could be amplified to drive a speaker and you could play it back. It was big, it was bulky, it required deft hands to thread the tape, And it meant it was not typically very user-friendly for most people. And it was pretty expensive. There were consumer models of reel-to-reel tape players. You could go out and buy one yourself. But very few people actually owned one just because it was kind of a hassle to use them. And they were very expensive. Uh, Also, the reels took up a lot of space. And depending upon which model you got, you might be stuck with specific types of reels that you could use. And you couldn't use other ones because they weren't compatible. RCA, the Radio Corporation of America, that has factored so heavily in these histories, developed a reversible cassette tape as early as the late 1950s. But it didn't look like the cassette tapes that were all the rage in the 1980s. The RCA cassette tape was much larger. It was about the size of a video cassette. And now I'm realizing that I'm comparing one obsolete technology against a different obsolete technology, and some of you may have no idea what I'm talking about, but the cassettes were about the size of your average paperback book. They were big, and the form factor didn't really catch on, so RCA would scrap it after a short while. The company Philips created the format that would become the cassette tape that those of us who grew up in the 80s know and love. It was called a compact cassette in the early days, and Philips developed these much smaller cassettes filled with magnetic storage back in 1962. They unveiled the technology at the 1963 Berlin radio show, the same radio show where we got to see the earlier forms of magnetic tape playback. So these cassettes were about the size of a credit card, much, much smaller than RCA's version. At the time, there were other magnetic storage formats that were vying for the top spot in the market, and the early versions of the Philips cassette weren't able to produce very high-quality recordings, and so they were marketed more as something to record speech to rather than music. You would buy a tape recorder, and you would buy the cassettes, and you would use it to dictate very much like the steel wire devices from decades earlier. So how the heck did the cassette become the standard with these kind of drawbacks? Well, it was largely because Philips made a very shrewd move. The company licensed the technology to other companies for free. So if you had the means to manufacture cassettes, you could get a free license from Philips and then you could do it. Philips wasn't going to take any sort of licensing fee or royalties that way. They could make money selling machines capable of recording and playing back the stuff on tapes and it was a savvy move that paid off, and the cassette, despite its early limitations, received widespread adoption. Engineers would continue to work on the technology, and it didn't take terribly long for the recording quality to improve to the point where it was at least feasible to use cassettes to record music. By 1965, European companies were doing that, and the following year in 66 saw the United States doing the same, and right away, companies were selling machines that could not only play a cassette, but also record to blank cassettes. And this would be another thing that would make an enormous impact on the recording industry. For two decades, vinyl would still hold out over pre-recorded cassettes. It's not like pre-recorded cassettes immediately displaced vinyl records. But in the 1980s, pre-recorded music cassettes overtook vinyl sales and things changed dramatically. The compact cassette's quality was pretty much always held up as inferior to a good vinyl album. Cheap cassettes had a lot of tape hiss, and tape hiss is produced by the magnetic particles that are on the tape. The larger the particles are, the more hiss you will hear during a recording. It's kind of the the bass level or the, the room noise of a tape. And you can reduce tape hiss a couple of different ways. One is by recording sound at a higher tape speed, Which effectively uses more tape to record the same amount of sound. So instead of saying, let's say that one version would have uh, a second equals, you know, let's say uh, eight inches of tape, which is pretty fast, Uh, and another one, uh, a second equals 16 inches of tape. Well, you're using twice as much tape to record the same amount of sound, and you also reduce hiss that way. You can also reduce hiss by reducing the size of the magnetic particles themselves. If you get finer grains of iron oxide, then it brings down hiss. And then other technologies later on would reduce hiss further. But early in the, to- the early days of uh, cassette tapes, hiss was one of those issues. And cheaper tapes would still kind of create a hissing sound even late in the cassette tape era, That sound quality issue allowed another type of tape cassette to emerge as a contender for a relatively short while. So you had the compact cassette that was uh, pretty versatile, but not giving you the best sound quality. This rival had much better sound quality, but less versatility, and that was the famed 8-track Tape. The 8-track was able to take a spot the cassette wasn't quite ready for in 1965 as a format for pre-recorded content, specifically music, and it was the product of an odd collaboration. The partners of that collaboration included Ampex, that was the company that made the 8-track recorder for Les Paul, and it also included RCA Records as a prime contributor, and then there was the Lear Jet Company, which, yeah, that's kind of weird, right? Company known for making jets played a major role in developing a magnetic tape technology for music, and William Lear, the head of the company, used his connections to convince executives at Ford Motors to come on board and make an eight-track player an option on every single 1966 Ford model, and that was a huge b- boost for the eight-track, and it was considered a uh, a great solution. You could take your music with you, and you could listen to it in the car. So. There's something else I got to talk about just briefly before I get into more about the 8-tracks, which was that in the 1950s and the 1960s, leading up to the introduction of the 8-track, a few companies had experimented with vinyl turntable systems for cars, which sounds crazy. For understandable reasons, it was not an easy thing to do. You have to rely on a format that has a physical needle or stylus moving through a tiny groove on a spinning disc Meanwhile, you're driving a vehicle on different surfaces. It's probably not the most reliable way of hearing high-fidelity tunes. So while some companies tried that, including CBS, which introduced a record format just for cars that spun at 16 and two-thirds RPMs, and was a specific player that spun at that speed, which meant that you had to have discs recorded at that speed to be able to use it, they, these systems never got much momentum. And that's a pun. So eight-track tapes are portable. You could have a few in your car, you could plug them into your system, listen to tunes, and that came in handy if your radio wasn't picking up any strong signals, or if the stuff playing in your area didn't meet your personal musical tastes. And this was a time when FM stereo wasn't really widely available in the 1960s. You know, you couldn't get it everywhere. So there was a niche to be filled for, for higher quality sound in cars. And the eight-track one out. Over another format, the four track. There was a four track uh, tape as well, but the quality of an eight track was far superior to cassettes of the same era, and it would take more advances in cassette technology for the cassette format to surpass that of the eight track. And music labels jumped on board. They gave a lot of support for eight track tapes in the early days, and it had a pretty strong run for about a decade. But by the mid-1970s, improvements in cassette technology, including reducing tape hiss, and Dolby invented a noise reduction approach, along with the introduction of high bias tape coding uh, that really made cassettes viable against 8-tracks. Plus, cassette tapes were easy to record on. If you wanted, you could buy blank tapes, put them in a tape recorder, and tape music from some other source, like the radio, which is what I used to do as a kid. And man... Did I hate it when DJs would start talking at the end or beginning of songs? Ruining my song, man. Shut up. Just let it play. The 8-track faded from the consumer space over the course of another decade. So cassettes took over after about 10 years, but the 8-track held on. It didn't just disappear immediately. By the mid-1970s, the major companies had stopped making 8-track players... But the format itself hung on a little bit longer than that. Companies were still producing 8-track albums for several years after that. Uh, Though it was actually a challenge to find a store that would carry 8-tracks while the cassette was taking off. Because stores loved cassettes, they took up very little space so you could have a pretty wide selection of music without requiring an enormous amount of physical store space. And cassettes didn't have some of the capacity limitations that 8-track tapes had. An 8-track typically divided up an album into four stretches of tape called programs. And there was an audible gap between programs. There was a limited amount of tape that the 8-track could hold, and it usually meant that at least one song on an album wouldn't make it onto the 8-track version, and some songs would fall right on that break between two programs. Typically, that would mean that the song you were listening to would fade out, then there would be an audible click, then there would be a pause of silence while the next program was getting pulled through the player, and then the song would fade up again, essentially where it left off, which wasn't ideal. Cassettes had a bit more versatility, allowing record labels to fit an entire side of a vinyl album onto one side of a cassette tape. Cassettes were also seen as more portable than 8-tracks. It was possible to have a cassette player in a car, or a stereo system, or a boombox, or a portable cassette player like the famed Sony Walkman. People could have their music on the go. They could jog while listening to music. The convenience and portability paired with the capability of recording stuff of your own choosing onto tape, whether it was someone else's stuff or your own, that made cassettes the clear winner over eight tracks. And while those early cassettes still weren't necessarily viewed by audiophiles as being particularly good, they also were winning out over vinyl for those same reasons with the general consumer. The philosophy of convenience and accessibility over fidelity was winning in the mainstream public, much to the chagrin of many audiophiles out there. And the cassette gave opportunities to independent musicians that they otherwise never would have had. More about that in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break. So the recording industry typically works like this. You're a musician, or you're in a band or something. You play gigs whenever you can. You practice. You write songs. You practice some more. You get better over time. You develop your sound, your style, your voice, and generally you figure out who the heck you are, musically speaking. You might submit your music to record labels. You might hire a manager to try and take care of that for you. Or maybe you're super lucky and someone influential sees one of your shows and you get a meeting with a record label representative. Then you negotiate, you sign a deal, and now, bam, you got yourself a record contract, which is a great fairy tale. And for some people, it does work out that way. But you've got thousands of people for every success story who make music, but they're not being heard by record labels. And that's not necessarily out of malice or anything like that. And then there are musicians who would rather stay independent than sign on with a record company in the first place, since the company might dictate what the musician can or can't record or what they should sound like. The cassette tape gave people that were in that category a lot of new chances. The recording equipment was relatively inexpensive. Blank cassettes were likewise pretty darn cheap, and they also are pretty rugged. You could record music to a cassette, you could duplicate the cassette, and then you could mail off the duplicates to people in the mail, and the tape was probably going to survive because it's, it's pretty hardy stuff. And indie culture developed around this practice, with different musicians and music enthusiasts trading tapes back and forth and spreading music that way outside the recording industry system. So you had this kind of thriving independent scene that was growing because of the cassette tape. The cassette and the introduction of sound systems like the boombox also allowed people to share music with others in an unprecedented way. It was easy to bring a boombox to a location, pop in a cassette, and then blast out the tunes so people nearby could hear the music you know, whether they they wanted to or not. But it allowed for the development of music communities and cultures like hip-hop. So whole new genres of music were growing out of the adoption and use of this recorded medium. At first, the recording industry was totally on board with cassette culture. But this gradually changed as executives realized the format allowed people to easily reproduce pre-recorded cassettes. They feared a hit to the bottom line. So here's how their doomsday scenario might play out. A music fan, let's call him Jonathan, decides to purchase a brand new cassette copy of the album Speaking in Tongues by Talking Heads because he really digs the song This Must Be the Place, which is pretty much all true because that song is perfect. Okay, but Jonathan, loving this song, gets an idea. He bought this cassette for, let's say, the princely sum of $12. And he goes out and buys a whole bunch of blank cassettes for $20. So he's brought his investment up to $32. $32. Then he starts duplicating his copy of Speaking in Tongues and then sells the copies for just $5 each. And after selling seven copies, he's recaptured all the costs of both the blank cassettes and the original tape and undercutting local music stores and the recording label. Uh, Sire Records, which was the recording label, doesn't get the benefit from all those copies that Jonathan is selling. So music industry executives were understandably concerned. They hated this idea with a passion hotter than a thousand exploding suns. Several companies in the British Phonographic Industry Trade Group decided to launch a PR campaign against the practice with the claim that, quote, home taping is killing music, end quote. Music, by the way, is still alive and well today, just in case you were worried. And I'm sure this argument sounds familiar to you. If it doesn't, it will by the end of the series because it's gonna come up again and again in different forms. So while the record labels were freaking out, lots of musicians were actually encouraging the practice of copying music and sharing it with others. Uh, Lots of musicians were concerned more with their music being heard by a larger number of people than with the actual record sales numbers. And the slogan, home taping is killing music, became sort of a joke among a certain set of musicians, particularly in the punk rock music scene, which was just really really taking off in the in the late 70s. And that was already firmly in the anti-establishment headspace. Dead Kennedys were famous for doing this. Now, music piracy was possible. It could happen, but it wasn't really rampant in the cassette days in most places. Pirating music still took money and time and effort. You had to get hold of a copy of the music, you had to get hold of blank cassettes, and then you had to spend the time recording from the original onto a copy, and most recorders would only allow you to do that at playback speed. So if you have an hour-long album, it would take an hour for you to copy it onto a single blank cassette. So It wasn't exactly something that was easy to mass manufacture, and I think most of those fears were largely unwarranted. Something that happened more frequently were mixtapes, made recently famous by the Guardians of the Galaxy movies. People began to rifle through their music collections and put together a series of songs for folks they knew, and there was a real art to this. Uh, According to some people, there were even rules you should absolutely follow to get the best result. For example, some aficionados will tell you that a mixtape should never feature the uh, same artist or group on it twice. No repeats. So if you open with the kinks all day and all of the night which came out in 1965, and then you ended the mixtape with the Kinks' song Ape Man, which came out in 1988, you would technically be breaking that rule. Now, personally, I think that's silly because some bands, like the Kinks, can change their sound dramatically over the course of their careers. It almost sounds like two totally different bands, but never mind all that. Anyway, you can search the internet to find out about the rules of making mixtapes. Everyone has their own set. And these days, those same rules carry over into making playlists, so it still has relevance. The mixtape culture became an important social interaction. It provided a new way to clue people in as to what kind of person you are. And it gave folks a chance to put something together for someone else, showing that they were thinking about them. So if you received a mixtape, particularly a really good one, It was a huge thrill because it showed that someone else was thinking about you and trying to craft an experience that you would really enjoy. So the 8-track had a reign of around 1966 to 1975. And then the compact cassette, the cassette tape, took over from there and really caught on in the 1980s. But it too would have a short run as the king of media because the compact disc would debut in the late 1980s and by the following decade would all but annihilate the compact cassette. During this same era, there was another huge change that was taking place in the United States as well as other parts of the world, but I'm mainly going to focus on the U.S., and that was the nature of copyright law. In the U.S., the government had passed a Copyright Act way back in 1909, but it hadn't really touched it since. But in the decades following 1909, it became clear that copyright law would need an update. Technology was allowing for the broadcast and preservation of intellectual property in new ways, from radio to television to recorded media like vinyl albums and cassettes. And the Universal Copyright Convention, an international agreement on copyright, had debuted back in 1952 in Switzerland, and the United States joined that convention in 1955. But it wasn't until 1976 that the U.S. government was ready to pass some new copyright rules in the 1976 Copyright Act. The new act created protections of all sorts of intellectual property, and it also extended the terms of protection. Under the 1909 Act, a copyrighted work would receive protection for 28 years from the date of its uh, origin, with the possibility of a 28-year extension. So ultimately, you could protect it for 56 years total. The 1976 Act changed that. Under the 1976 Act, a work is protected by copyright for the length of the author's life, plus 50 years. That would get changed again in 1998 with the Copyright Term Extension Act that pushed it to the author's life, plus 70 years. And for works created before 1978, the rules are a little different. There are several factors that determine the length of copyright protection, but many works were given 76 years of protection from the year of their creation or publication. The extension would push that to 95 years. And if you're wondering, why is this happening? What, what's important about this? And, and how, is all, or how are all these changes happening? Well, it's largely because of really big companies that rely on intellectual property for their value. For example, the Walt Disney Company. A lot of people refer to these extensions as Walt Disney extensions. The Walt Disney Company certainly does not want its its formative works falling into the public domain if it can help it. Uh, Because once they're in the public domain, anyone can use them under certain circumstances. There are other protections that are in place as well. But, you know, copyright goes into public domain and then anyone can can show this stuff uh, without any fear of... Uh, the mouse house coming down on them. So without the the extension, Mickey Mouse would have gone into the public domain in 2004 uh, under the original Copyright Act of 1976. Now he's set to skip off into the public domain in 2024. And as of right now, there has not been another change to copyright law to change that date. So 2024, we're looking at Mickey Mouse going into the public domain unless something changes within the next few years. My point with all of that is to say the changing technology from the 19th and 20th centuries meant that suddenly things that used to be ephemeral, you know, like a performance, could now be made permanent. People could have a permanent record of that, a permanent way of recreating those performances when before you just had to be there when it happened and and if you weren't, you missed it. And these things have value not just to the creators, but to the audiences as well, and that this drove changes in technology, in culture, and in law. But we're not done yet. In our next episode, I'm going to talk a bit about how the videotape made a similar impact in film and television as the cassette did in the music industry. And we'll also look at the rise of the compact disc. Still to come is the transition to digital formats and then... Beyond DVDs and things of that nature and Blu-rays, we're going to talk about digital files, and then we're going to talk about different ways of delivering it, from downloading it to streaming it, and how all of this has affected our behaviors, business, and even the process of creating the entertainment in the first place. I hope you guys are enjoying this series of episodes. I've really enjoyed jumping into it. I like doing the sort of thematic approach and a deep dive on a specific topic. But once we're done with these, we'll be going back to lots of other kind of one-off tech stuffs. So don't worry if this wasn't your cup of tea, we're going to be getting back to other tech stuff stuff in the near future. Tech stuff stuff. I should make a shirt about that. Meanwhile, if you guys want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email. The address is at techstuffathowstuffworks.com, or you can pop on over to our website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You'll find links to our social media presence, as well as to the store and an archive of all of our past episodes. I hope you guys can go check that out. I look forward to hearing from you, and I'll talk to you again really soon.